0: take the Bible and turn to Ephesians. We, uh, look at this week. This is message number 65 of the book of Ephesians. This is the end. This is the close of this sermon series on the book of Ephesians. And I pray that it is ministered to you as much as it is ministered to me in my heart. And, uh, and I hope and trust that will over the years to come, as you continue to think about the things we've discussed, think about things we didn't discuss, uh, things that are just there in the letter for you, I pray it will always be to you. This past week as we, as a nation, celebrated the birth of a Great Spirit, you know, that's what it was called. There was uh, doubt, I'm sure, whether it could be pulled off, this idea that power and the right of government sits with the people. Um, In some ways, it was a brand new venture, 236 years ago. And this week I thought and taught my children on Wednesday, we sat around the table at the end of the day and read the Declaration of Independence. Now, I admit, that can be hard for us. Noah said, halfway through the reading, these men must have been really smart because I don't understand anything except. Really <laughs> to which Lily responded, to which Lily responded, Daddy, is this Bible study almost over? <laughs> Two things happened at that moment. I realized every time I pick something at the table now that had anything to do with a book, Lily thinks we're doing Bible study. So I need to correct that. And secondly, my son is right. These were really smart men, and they had a very profound idea. We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal. And that they are given by God unalienable rights, things that no man grants them, and only God grants them, to which include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Profound words may be as far as the founding of the nation, have never, more profound words have never probably ever been spoken. This was not a country that began um, through war. This is a country that began prior to war. Now, it had to establish itself free through war, but you gotta understand, in those colonies, they believe that we are a free people. We have been given the right by God to determine our future and our posterity's future. Whatever that may be, without the rule of the crown, without the force of an army, without the implementation of a, a forced uh, reunion in a, column, in a colony situation. But deep in their hearts also was birthed and was lived out and has been for 20, 36 years, an unhealthy view of rights. Because we're all broken apart. the line. Because what that has become over 236 years is, I have rights, and nobody can tell me what I can and cannot do. I'm an independent person. I have no desire or care about the group. It's just about me and my family. The pursuit of happiness has become the pursuit at all costs. Of my personal happiness, without any thought about what's equally created, awful, unfortunate, and even deeper than that, the High to Ephesians is we have even become a people, who, unfortunately, at any time to say God has no right to decide and determine, tell me what I can and cannot do. We see it all the time, though. We live it all the time in our own personal lives, in our own families. I struggle with it, don't you? We see it in national ways, don't you? The whole debate about abortion that has raged in this country since the 1960s basically comes down to this idea of rights. I have rights. Nobody can tell me what I can do. The debate that we currently have raging nationwide, community after community, is raging over the definition of marriage. If I love another human, regardless of how you feel about that,
1: don't I have the
0: right of self-expression? And should you have to legally recognize my rights of self-expression? That's really the heart of the issue. God. Nor the state, nor anyone else has the right to tell me what I can. That's why the Book of Ephesians is especially meaningful to me and you. It's meaningful to the whole world, but in a place like the United States, the Book of Ephesians is a is a corrective that only God can, a perspective that only God can. Because we are people who believe the Bible is the Word of God. Every single line, word, punctuation is the Word of God. Then we're forced when we come to the book of Ephesians to deal with some very difficult matters, right? Anywhere in here did you see the establishment of mine and your rights? It said God had a desire, but it all hangs in the balance for you. You make a decision. We don't give those kind of words in Ephesians. We see the corrective given to that kind of thinking (laughs) that God wants to do something, but He's bound by what I want for my life. And so, as we close, I just think it'd be helpful if we just walk through quickly the entire book again, looking at it from the lens, from the of God's amazing grace. Looking at the fact that God is pouring out on us amazing grace. Grace is defined by saying that which we do not deserve. We don't have a right to. It's the perfect a picture for people like us who think we have rights to everything for God to say, I'm going to give you something you have no right to. If you got what you had a right to, you'd go to hell today, immediately. Don't pass out. Don't collect $200. Go straight there. That's what we deserve. But God says, I'm not giving you what you have a right to, I'm not giving you what you deserve. I'm giving you what you can never lay hold to, never claim, never possess, never earn. It's a really amazing concept. It's a really beautiful book. It is at the heart of Paul's teaching about the gospel. It's at the heart of the scripture. Many historians and, and theologians have said this is the heart of the Bible in Jesus. This is where, where, where the Bible is ultimately driving us in one day. So let's look at the letter. Kind of a broad view. Close out this sermon series looking at God's inspiration First of all, I want us to see the plan. The plan. The plan is that God receive ultimate glory. That's God's plan. God is in this for God. He's not in this for me. He's not in this for You. He's not in this for lost people in tribes that have never heard the gospel or know who Jesus Christ is. That's not who God is in this for. God is in this ultimately, finally, for His own glory. Where do we see that? Verse 9, chapter 1. Look with me at verse 9. He says, Paul says, making known to us the mystery of his will, his plan, his outline, his blueprint. That's what he's making known to us, the mystery of that. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, I gather from this that what God desires is that Christ be central in all things, and God receive glory in all things, in everything that he received ultimate praise and glory. That's God's base motivation. You say, I don't like that. We don't get to vote. God didn't ask us if we God is God, and we are not. That's Stephen Curtis and so profoundly sin. Right? He's a theologian. God is God. I'm not. Neither are you. He didn't ask us what we felt about that. It might have bothered you a little because it, might, it does bother me at times because we're so we think of God as something so utterly different in our daily operations. See, we think God's like Santa Claus and He's doing everything he can to make us happy. He's the white-headed, white-bearded grandpa in heaven that just just wants to give us a sloppy pop. You know, you remember Papa's house? Mama spanked me every day. My mama's all spanked me every My granddad never spanked me. I come running through the house, a little blonde-headed boy come running through the house, a lot like dog, full of energy, one tall. And whether he was bribing me to get me to quit talking or because he loved me, he, used to give me things. he didn't to just forgave me. Here, have this. Take $5. Run down to the corner You know, it was just it was gifts all the time. That's how we view God all the time. And so we get this view that my salvation and this whole world is all about me. It's our candy shop. We run around and we want some of these. Tell God he gives it to us. And there's even aberrant gospels in our day that tell us that's exactly what God's doing. And you know he loves you because he gives you stuff. And when he stops giving you stuff, he doesn't love you anymore. See, that's basically human sin, man sin, theology. Right? But in the first part of this letter tells us the plan is my glory, not you. How does he choose to play that out? subset point in chapter 1 is the plan involves God didn't create the world, the world went above, and God thought, i got to save the ship. It's going to matter. What am I going to do? Well, this looks like a good enough plan. Let's do this. That's not how it happened. Look at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The location of this blessing is the heavenly places, which is the first key to what he said in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him. When? Say it. Before he ever created the world, he had a plan for his ultimate glory, which played itself out in the redemption of the fallen, broken, sin. Before he ever stood down in the garden and formed our first heart and breathed life and spirit in you, he said, I will save this man. Sin was no second afterthought. God planned for our redemption. Jesus is described as the Lamb slain with before the foundation of the world. Jesus didn't come on an ad hoc rescue mission to save broken humanity, who guided us both by Himself. He came to bring His Father ultimate glory. And the only place we see it is in our election, prior to the foundation of the world, in Christ, who would be the vehicle of God's glory, on the cross. I would say before He founded the earth, He's on the cross. Everything He's done in all of history has centered and been founded on what he would do that day on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The plan is God's ultimate the glory. It's played out in redemption. It's applied in the second chapter we see redemption is applied in salvation. In individual, personal relationship with God. Salvation. Look at chapter 2. How it breaks down. In the first four verses, Paul gives the most despicable, the most concise, and the most harsh examination of who you are and your life. And we were all dead in trespasses and sins, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Christian, Paul says, you, I, Jew, Gentile, all of us were wrapped up in this fallen nature. We all were despicable before God. Every one of us was living for our own passions and our own desires as a rebel against God's will. And God's authority and God's sovereignty. Nobody in here, from birth to death, can stand before God and say, There was a day when I was all about me. I mean, it was all about you. I wasn't about me. Nobody can do that. I would confess that not even you and me, as Christians, mature Christians, can say, Lord, I lived this entire day, and the only thing I did was bring glory to you. That's our desire. But if we just break it down, we're falling. We're broken. We know we are not yet, even in the same state, good. We have the promise, and the spirit, and the covenant, and the reality that we will be one day, finally, good. But we're not there yet. And so even in our best day, we can say, it's next. Sometimes more than others. But it's always big. Why? Because there is this birth, DNA, desire to rebel and to be our own person and to live in our own flesh and for our own glory. It's in our personhood as humans because of the fall to go against God's ultimate plan of the Lord for himself. And so, Paul gives this description. And as they hear, he doesn't stop. He shows that the plan of redemption applied is salvation. Verses 5 through uh, 10 tell us plainly clearly that God because of his great mercy and his great love with which he loved us then gave us what we could never have. He gave us salvation. He gave us the right to be in Christ. So what it says. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. God is the action. God is the one who takes the initiative. God is the one who comes after broken and fallen humans like me and like you and grasps them into Christ by grace. Through faith, which is not of ourselves, but is a gift of God. A beautiful picture. And he not only knew he would save you, but he knew exactly what you would do. And he planned every moment of us. Look what it says in verse 10 For we are his craftsmanship, his workmanship. Think of the carpenter's bench, the potter's wheel. He's making us into something. everything He's making us into ultimately brings Him glory. Look what it says. For we are His worship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God did before Him, prepared before Him that we should walk in And so not only is the plan for God's glory prohibited in Ephesians, but it's played out through redemption, which is applied individually to us as terrible, rotten, deserving of dead sinners, we receive the grace of God. Everything about the first two chapters screams, honor, praise, worship be to our God. Nothing in these first two chapters says look at me. I'm Satan. All I know is pretty bad. But I have one day I promise I'll go through you then. Nothing in the first chapter says that. Every book says, God has rights. God has mercy. God has grace. God chose you. God put you in Christ. And God is making you in such a way that you'll walk in the works he's made you. This redemption is not just a vertical redemption, which is played out between God and each of us as individuals, but it is played out for us in the corporateness of the church. That's what the second second chapter is all about. It's all about the fact that now being saved and right with God, we're right with our fellow man. Verse 14 says, for he himself is our peace, Jesus is our peace who made us both one, both Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing law of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we the plan for God's glory is redemption. Applied individually, it is salvation. Corporately, it is reconciliation. This is how beautiful and how many facets there are. Can't you just see Paul? I said this earlier in the series. Can't you just see Paul sitting? We don't know exactly, but we believe in Rome, in prison, at near the end of his life, an older man just turning slowly, ever so slowly, the diamond of And seeing through the prism of Christ. The of it. You know, yesterday we were coming down the steps of our house and in our front door we have a window. And it's got different frosting and shading and blurriness and all that. You can't really see outside or we from out there, but just faintly. But in the afternoon in the sun gets to a right angle and shine through that and put a prism. Diffuse the light there a little bit so we can see red and yellow and just different colors. That's exactly what Paul's doing. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's saying, look, it's not a block. The gospel's not a block. Gospels, not the gospel is united around Christ, and through Him we see all these different <coughs> arrays, hues of color that we never could see before. We were walking back downstairs. I had Hope. I was holding the hand. Our friends, the handlers, are here. They're adopt, they're, they're, they've been on the adoption journey with us, and Linus Hope helped them reach their goal. And Yo-Yo's here with us because of that. Regardless, she was home. Yo-Yo was home, Hope's up there, and I was home, Hope. We are coming down from Hope, being upstairs. And, and I didn't notice it. It's just a commonplace being. Yo-Yo was stop. She said, Look! I thought something was wrong. She's pretty mad. I look, said, I said, what, man? She said, look right there. that's what I mean. That's what Paul's doing. He said, God's plan is his reward. I turn it just a little. It's the redemption of fallen man. I turn it just a little. It's the salvation of individuals. So that they're right between the creator and you. And just turn it a little more. And not only that is made right, but the relationship horizontally between between. The end of is made right in Christ. He just keeps turning a little by little. The next thing we see played out in the plan for redemption is the plan applied in sanctification. In sanctification. As this glorious gospel goes forward in the mystery of it, and Paul prays that people would come into the full realization in chapter 3 and the end, I want you to know God's love. I want you to see the depths of it. How does that play out? Chapter 4. Chapter 4, I've given you gifted, called, equipped members to be your pastors and teachers so that you can be built up in every way through the Spirit into one body, joined together by the Spirit. So I don't just want to save individuals that's not my plan. My plan is to save the church. And in the process, verse 17 chapter 3 says, you've got this new life of holiness for you." Because where our theology sometimes, let's face it, sometimes falls apart on us. It's not that the theology falls apart. It's our problem. My problem. Your problem. It is. If all this sovereignty talk is true, Throw caution to the moon. Live and let live. Who cares if I see you? Jesus will forgive you. Right? You never do that. I will make you. But we do. We do. So, we face a lot of attacks sometimes in our camp because it's a lack of hope. We're just looking for an excuse to see it. Instead of running to that, we see the instruction of Paul in chapter 4, chapter 5, where he says, you are living a new life. You don't need to walk any longer like a lost man. Take Gentile out. Like a pagan. Don't walk that way anymore. That's what he's saying. Don't act like you don't have a relationship with the Creator and with the church. Don't live that way Alright? How does that play itself out? In this beautiful community that learns to communicate in gracious words that build up rather than tear A community that learns to be angry and sin not. A community that learns to never let corrupting thought proceed from its lips. Never lies and lives an untruthful life in front of another. But lives lovingly, gently, kindness. Most of all, in the love of God. Having been given the love of God, verse five, chapter five, verse one and two say now live the love of God. It's this way of walk and live in daily. That God loves you means you can love everyone else. That's profound. Is it not? That's profound. That means car carrying. Gun-toting conservatives this year in the church ought to be perfectly comfortable to lay that down and dwell with our, with our brothers in Christ who don't see the way the world the way we see it. Without compromising truth, we should be able to love Christians who hold different views from us politically. It means that we should embrace, not run from the man or woman who comes to us and says, I have same sex attraction. I've had it all my life. I know it's not how I'm supposed to live. But I I, I can't help the way I feel. Please pray for me. Please help me. I don't want to live in sin. Stand firm in the truth and in the love of God and love that. That's what it means. Be kind. Be gentle. Be loving. Be truthful. Be honest. Don't cover over their sin. Or yours for that matter. Be angry at sin, not at person, and sin not. All these things, communities should look like that. that we are able, because we are Christ indwelled by the Spirit, we can live in close community with others. I think sometimes we forget what the new church was made of. Tell me if I'm wrong, sometimes don't we fall in the trap of thinking the first church was this pristine place where everybody talked in these and doubts. Everybody had the same view of everything. Everybody thought alike, acted alike, had the same personality. I mean, we can fall into that trap. Where is this really fictional utopia? The new church was not a utopia. It was broken, fallen, people falling in sin all the time. We read the letters, most of the letters of Paul, they come from him, come for what reason? People are sinning in a big way. We got a church in the New Testament that has a son who's married having relations with his stepmother. That's really messed up. That's dirty. Why do you think Paul talks about homosexuality so much? Which he does. Your translators are just kind to your ears. They don't want to put it in. But uncleanness, it is homosexuality. Why do you think he's constantly having to tell the churches, this uncleanness will keep you from the kingdom of heaven? Why? Because there's no homosexuals in, in their midst? No, because there are homosexuals there. People who practice homosexuality got saved by the gospel, came into the fellowship of the church. Everybody said, Oh, oh, thank you. Oh, hey, brother. I can get together. Stay with me. You. You. Right? That was going on. Paul had to give crossways with them and say, We're all sinners. God has a plan, a glorious plan for His glory alone, which plays itself out in redemption, is applied to the individuals in salvation, and brings them to oneness in Christ. And that I did in sanctification. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, saved by grace. It's the only difference between my former life and my life. And, and the truth is, we need to get there. You see that? The second half of teachings, our theology sometimes breaks down because we're not applying our theology. Sanctification that spreads into the family relationship. It spreads into how we treat one another as wives and husbands, fathers and sons, slave owners to slaves. I mean, that's the nitty gritty of the gospel. As long as we stay in the Rarefied error of talking theology, everything's okay. It's just when you then take that down from the top shelf and put it on the field. It's okay in light of that. How do I treat my failing marriage? How do I re- interact with my children who have made decisions to walk away from the faith? And never hear about God again. How do, I, how do I live like that? How do I not provoke them to wrath? Even as young children. How do I not provoke them to wrath? as growing the boat? How do I live? That's the gospel that really we need to be dealt with. How do I go to work? And work hard as of the Christ. And not please my boss. How do I force treat my employees like my brothers? And apply the gospel in that relationship. We started to see some of those things, the reality of that. And we've seen marriages here through. Some of the greatest joy I've seen in the the time we've been in Ephesians was in the marriage and family section. Where people start to admit, our marriage is broken, and we need help. I'm the problem, not my spouse. I need help. Some of your marriages are still here because of that, because the gospel is alive. Forgiveness is extended. Recommitting to the covenant was made, and now you're living in life. The gospel, I'm saying the message of the gospel in the first half is the message of the gospel in the second half. In the practical, Paul's not walking away from the foundation, he's building the foundation. So whether I'm friends, just to get real blood, whether I'm friends in my neighborhood with the, with the guy down the street, whether I'm, whether I'm relating with him, <coughs> Should be gospel sin. It shouldn't be about whether this relationship is pushing us both towards Christ. That's how it should be related. That's what my mind should be thinking. Not just I'm hanging out with you because I like it. We seem to fall out from doing that. We're just hanging out because we get along. off. But we're not pushing one another to Christ. That eventually breaks down, and falls apart. Can't be sustained. The gospel changes us in how we relate. Finally, we see that not only is this gospel applied in salvation and sanctification, but it's applied in the fight of faith. The last part of the book that we've been in for the last weeks has all about fighting the daily fight. the And that the gospel of God Is really the pieces of that armor that allow us to fight. So many times I think I'm guilty, maybe you are, of saying, well, we got the gospel, what's next? Right? I mean, that's the thing. Because, in case you got your head to say, there's a 40,000 church convention right now in a fight because one of their leaders stood at their convention and said God saves people we can't save them through sinners' prayers and the whole convention and what had happened was unknowingly many had fallen into the mindset of the gospel is like an entry card. They wouldn't say it like this, but I'm being kind. I, I think their desire as a convention is to see lost people say, I don't question that. But what David Platt challenged in his message was the thought that that is the front door and that's all. But his challenge was, when you get done with that person saying, repeat after me, and then you put the sinner's prayer, and they come down, they sign a card, they join a vocal body, then we move on from the gospel. Now we get about doing whatever else we're going to do in life. That's what threw them into a controversy. It's a good thing. Because it's caused people on both sides to think about why they're doing what they do, why they say what they say, why they structure end of their services the way they structure it. I'm prayerful it's going to be a great professional of rethinking that the gospel is not the beginning but it is the entirety of life. It's everything. When we in this Ephesians study we should walk away with God has a plan, it is for His glory. That involves redemption of fallen, broken, sinful people and in that redemption, he applies it in salvation personally and in corporate salvation. He applies it in, in, in sanctification in every area of our life so that we can fight it. The gospel is not a doormat we walk across, a threshold we enter by, but it is the house we live in. That's what we all need to agree to walk away from Ephesians. This is the house we live in. I don't know how to run that plants over there. I have no idea. But thank God, I have the gospel to help me figure it out. That's the biggest thing we can walk away from is admitting we're afraid, we're false, we don't know how to do life. If we'd all just tell each other that, then we wouldn't be so mad at one another so long. I mean, what's wrong with that person? We would just all go say, oh, they're morons like I am. None of us know how to live life. We're figuring it out. Hey, it's okay to say. Obviously, from the beginning of the church, this service to say, I don't have it all figured out. I fail. I'm afraid. I'm drawn away by other things. But thank God, the gospel allows us to recenter on what we do. And say, hey, you know what? We're gonna get through this. It's messy. It's ugly. Things come out we don't like, but in the end, the gospel will fail. I had an exchange this week on Facebook about a topic, I mean, that, it's, it's a family and member. And, and, and I'm getting into the topic, it distracts me. But this is my point. This family member came at me very harshly. And my first instinct was, oh, you won't play like that? <laughs> and my next response was, I've been right where she's at. I've treated people the same. I used to believe the exact same thing she's preaching to me about. So I stepped back. Deep breath. And we have an interaction. I'd not like to say all that in the quilt. It did partly a bit some of us to be your team. We still disagree completely on the topic. But what we were able to get to in the conversation about God's grace is we agree on what we're going to We agree on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the team we're all on, is the gospel. So now listen. we may have to live in disagreement on that issue. It may not get resolved, and then we just begin the fullness of it. and that's, that's okay. That's alright. We got to, that's the freedom that comes from the gospel. To not have all the good and know all the process. And we find that by the So as we close this sermon series, not close out the gospel, but close out the sermon series let's commit to a few things of the body let's commit to live that way in community that way simply as the gospel as our foundation and I encourage you there are those of us who have people in the congregation in this body that we've held grievances we're not associating as closely as we should but it's because we feel like the other person's wrong. Maybe that I've done so much wrong, I can't really fix it. And so there's this barrier. So let's leave Ephesians saying there are no barriers. The wall's been torn down. We're at peace with God and with our fellow people. So whatever things are there, let's deal with them. Let's commit to that, to live the gospel. Secondly, let's commit to proclaiming the gospel. Our world is broken and divided, is it not? There are so many quick fix plans being proposed. Politically, socially, in the church, quick fixes that are not gospel centered. So why don't we be different and offer the one plan that's unchanged, and that's the gospel? second, Hey. When I interact with the people of this community, I'm going to interact with the basis of Jesus Christ. Which means if they're lost, I'm going to love them enough to share the gospel with them and be patient if God deals with them in the process of bringing them to a point of understanding of that. And if they're already Christians if we just disagree on some things, I'm going to continue to walk with them as long and as far as it's possible to be in peace so that the gospel is being displayed. Let's commit, let's recommit. We've committed to it, but let's recommit going out of this series, sermon series, recommit to walking in gospel relationship, Christ-centered relationship within the congregation and outside the congregation, and to proclaiming this great message. This, this message should never be shut up. It should never be muted. Should it be? It should never be silent. We love Christ because He first loved us and we should talk about our first love. Early on. Early on. So let's leave with the, to live out the Not just to learn and then let go. Let's live it out. I'm encouraged, me, you know, encouraging that to this way. I am I have been amazed of the last month to see your interactions with one another as a church I, I, I really I am I am so excited about that. That so many of you are taking up that call and saying, hey, we don't know these people very well, we're gonna have them over the night But we're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna go, you know, play a Ultimate friends and invite a bunch of others. We're going to go lots of power show. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And the first thought is who can we invite like to be with us? That's me. That shows that we're on process. We're moving forward. Let's continue that. Let's continue to grow and develop in that as we move forward. Before God's glory. Ultimately, when the day is done and we stand in His presence, He will receive full. Unadultered, uninterrupted worship, because he's the Lord. And he will then resound that back to us with his pleasure, well known, my good and faithful servant. That statement is not reserved for a few rare saints, but for the church of the This is my servant. It came from a lost and dying world. Look at her how precious she is. It never made in It never happened.